0: Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on creating a learning culture. In it, you'll discover why a culture of learning is important and how you can create one in your organization. Make sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com pod three zero eight. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am really excited about today's guest. I'm actually uh, in the process of reading his book, and so I can't f- wait to you know finish the recording so I can go back to it. <laughs> he's the CFO of Axon, which produces public safety technology with a vision of m- making the bullet obsolete. And he's the author of What They Didn't Tell Me, How to Be a Resilient Leader and Build Teams You Can Trust. He's based in Paradise Valley, Arizona. Welcome to the show, Jawada San.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Elizabeth.
0: I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've, I very much enjoyed your book. Um, but before we get into that, I just shared, you know, top level bullets of your resume, but that's not who you are. So I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe talk a little bit about the story, uh, about the journey that you've been on to get to where you are today.
1: Sure, sure. So yeah, like you said, um, I um, spent a long time at, at GE that's where I started my career right out of college and it was mm-hmm. a fantastic place to get leadership development training. A lot of the people I worked for were... Um, when I actually started at GE, Jack Welch was the CEO for a few months. And so a lot of the mm-hmm. people that I learned from and had exposure to were Jack Welch disciples. And I just had a just a fantastic uh, time there. I lived in seven different countries and you know probably 12 or 13 different states. And the great thing about GE, um, it's a bit different now, but it used to be the kind of company where you know the more you raise your hand and ask for more uh, different experiences and responsibilities they would they would give it to you. The more you ask, the more they mm-hmm. give you. And um, you know, I think in a lot of ways it was it was great for me because I got to experience different industries and business cycles. Uh, but it also gave me a sense for, you know just how I wanted to think about the rest of my career. I, you know, for a long time, I thought my mental model was keep your head down and work hard and you're gonna get tapped on the shoulder. Someone's gonna notice your great work and they're gonna, you know, bring you on to the next thing. My parents uh-huh. came here from Pakistan in the 70s and didn't really have much of a network. And uh-huh. I had to figure out a lot of things on my own growing up, going to uh-huh. high school and playing sports and even like going to prom. Like my parents didn't have those experiences and I had to kind of blaze my own trail. And the same thing was true when I got into the workforce. And the the further I advanced in my career, the more I, I met people. Who came from backgrounds whose parents were successful? Maybe their families mm-hmm. had a legacy of like you know success in business, and uh, they were able to leverage relationships or lay out a blueprint for their kids as to how they needed to get to where they wanted to go. And you know, I didn't have that, but that doesn't mean that you know you can't do that yourself. And that's really what my book is about. Is I had to blaze my own trail, and along the way, I learned a few lessons, and I wanted to share those lessons uh, in my book.
0: Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And I think um, that might be what is resonant for a lot of readers, because while they might not be from the same background as you, I think there are so many of us who have um, had to blaze a trail kind of outside uh, what, what we might have seen growing up. I mean, I've I'm personally from a very small town, um, less than 3,000 people in the Midwest. And everybody in my family works, like, you know, in factories and um, lots of the military and uh, restaurants and other things like that, blue collar jobs. And so um, moving to New York City and uh, working in consulting is definitely outside the scope of what I could imagine growing up. Um, And in some ways, like you said, there's a lot of challenge that you face when you're venturing outside, um, what you, what you saw, but, um, it's, it's really rewarding. And it's, it's exciting to see that you've taken what you learned and really, um, kind of distilled it down to, uh, some coherent, um, examples that uh, are really coming out in the book, uh, as far as I'm in it so far.
1: <laughs> yep. Thanks. That's, that's exactly what I was going for. It's not any one thing, right? There, mm-hmm. there are lots of different, uh, Lessons I learned in lots of different frameworks that I, I want people to think about as they're advancing in their careers.
0: Definitely, and it could be that you're you're from a different racial group or a different class background or anything. And uh, you know, there's so much that we can learn from. So I'll, I'll get us started on the book because what's coming out to me as the key structure. Of the book, it um, and it's how you kind of start every chapter of it is with specific feedback that you received, and then the lessons that you took from it. So, I wanted to actually just get us started, big picture. How did you discover that value of feedback and start to take feedback seriously?
1: You know, I love that you're opening with this question, Elizabeth, because this is one of the central themes of my book. Every chapter, as you mentioned, starts with a quote. The chapter title is literally a, a. quote that someone something some feedback I got something that someone said to me that was mm-hmm. at the time very difficult to hear but mm-hmm. with time and experience and context I was able to learn a lesson and you know I think what I what I learned along the way GE instilled this in me too right? GE is really really big on feedback it, you know a lot of places you work you get feedback from your manager. Um, hopefully once, twice a year, you have an annual review, maybe you have a yeah. an review. Hopefully you're getting it more often than that. At GE, you would get feedback on a daily basis. You would literally you know, walk out of a meeting and someone would pull you aside. My manager would pull me aside and give me feedback, give the team feedback. And you had this culture where people were very used to giving each other feedback. And mm-hmm. GE was also, you know, it could be a pretty direct place. And so some of the feedback, as you see in the book, wasn't always the easiest to hear, but it was it was really valuable. And I came to appreciate uh, feedback as a gift. And what I also learned, and I talk about this in the book, that there's, you know, not all feedback is good. Every time someone gives you feedback, they have their own biases and their own, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, anecdotes and experiences that they bring to it. And so over time, what I realize is that I need to think about taking feedback, not through a funnel, right? Not like listening to mm-hmm. everything and trying to synthesize everything, but really more as a filter, so I still mm-hmm. want to listen to everything, but I don't want to let all of it through because not all of it is really worth listening to. And I noticed this when I would get sometimes contradictory feedback. I'd, mm-hmm. I had uh, experiences at GE where I worked for managers in like five to six month rotations and then would rotate to another one and I would get conflicting feedback. And that that's when I started to realize that. Um, you know, what I need to really do is make sure that first and foremost, don't get defensive, right? That's Mm -hmm. one of the things I see when I give someone feedback is they want to explain it away and they want to say, well, I'm going to discount what you're telling me because of X, Y, Z, right? This is not super valid. And that's not what I learned, you know, that's not super helpful in the moment because you're that person next time might not want to give you feedback. Mm -hmm. You should listen to all feedback and, you know, digest it. And then on your own, separately, think about, okay, well, how much of this do I really feel is valid or how much do I think, you know, maybe is this person bringing their own experiences, but you should do that on your own. Um, because that to me, that's the idea of, the, of the, the filter versus the funnel. And that's a muscle that I developed. And it's a capability that I, I developed in my career that really allowed me to sit back and think objectively, okay, someone's telling me something. It's hard for me to hear, but you know what? Perception is reality. And I have to listen to what they're telling me, even if I don't agree with it. I need to understand um, if there's something I could be doing differently and I need to modify my behavior, maybe modify my approach. And that's really, I think, what got me to, to where I am today. I see, you know, a lot of times, Elizabeth, when you, when you have execs, they get to a certain point. What keeps them from progressing or getting a bigger job or more responsibility, a lot of people self-sabotage. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I mean by that is they, you know, they don't react well to feedback and someone's Mm -hmm. trying to tell them like, Hey, you know, you're a little, uh, difficult to work with, or you're, you're become entrenched in your ideas, or you're not open to, you know, uh, an opposing viewpoint and people will just, um, self-sabotage in the sense that they just, they just won't, they don't want to change. They don't want to listen. And that, that I think is really fatal.
0: Definitely. Um, It's interesting that you brought this back to GE because uh, actually our founder, Charles Bernard, started his career at GE. And we always talk about our company as a feedback organization. That's one of our key values. So that definitely comes through. Um, But I love that idea of a filter rather than a funnel, because if you were to just blindly follow everybody's feedback you'd be zigzagging back and forth you know you're going to get one person who says you're not detailed enough i need you to provide supporting materials and bullet points and give me everything that every bit of information that you possibly can and so you do that and then the next person that you work with or for says i want executive summaries this is much too detailed and then using too far in that other direction and so like you said figuring out um potentially I would imagine you're looking at, okay, this person gave me this piece of feedback. Does that match with what I think and what I see? Does that match with what I'm hearing from other people? So it's probably not just them. And does it, if I if I look at it, does it seem to impact my work in a way that I can see that, that making a change could have a positive impact? And using criteria like that to really filter out what might be just uh, an individual manager's personal preference or their bias, um, as opposed to really valuable pieces of feedback to adapt your work approach and um, you know, potentially make changes that you're going to continue moving forward.
1: That's exactly right. And that that you phrase it really well, this idea that you're, you know, you zigzag, I found myself zigzagging. Someone told mm-hmm. me once early in my career, you're too nice. You know, you have mm-hmm. like I don't really see you being able to make tough decisions or have tough discussions. And then, Someone then told me just a few months later, like, "Hey, you've got too much of an edge to you. <laughs> you know, you've got to like dial it back." And it's like, "What? What am I doing? Like, you I'm, I'm trying to, you know, navigate this uh, minefield of feedback." And so you're right. Like, what I think it's also important for you to to think about to to study other leaders mm-hmm. and to think about who is it that you want to emulate and what do you. Um, You know what do you not want to emulate? There are also you know sometimes leaders whose styles that you don't admire, and you want to not be that type of a leader, and it becomes important for you to to find your own um, leadership style and 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 uh, and your persona, and that's what you want to put out there. And it's important to get other people's feedback as well, Mm -hmm. and that's something I do to this day. When I have, uh, if I'm in a in a situation where I'm talking to uh, the com- addressing the company or talking to investors or a large audience the first thing I do after I get off the stage or get off the call you know now a lot of things are virtual is to ask three or four people on my team what feedback do you have for me what could I have done differently you know what, you know because it's uh, it's difficult to get an accurate perception of yourself just like if you don't if you're not used to hearing yourself talking when you hear a recording of yourself you know a lot of people mm-hmm. say do I really sound like that? <laughs> And everyone looks at themselves in the mirror like straight on. But sometimes if you see yourself from like a different angle in like a picture or whatever, you're like, oh, do I really look like that? It's the same thing with your perception, you know, in the workplace. And Mm -hmm. the only way you can get an accurate picture of how other people view you is by asking other people how they view you.
0: Absolutely, and I love that idea of identifying specific leadership characteristics because that's also what you're going to put in your filter. You know, when you're thinking about if you get that feedback from somebody, you're too nice. Um, if you're emulating a leader who is as nice as you are, basically, who who has a style of leadership that that benefits from um, niceness in in ways that you want to do, then you're probably not going to pivot really far away from what you're doing based on that feedback. Um, And on the other hand, if you've seen some negative impacts of a leader who was too nice, who was walked all over and wasn't able to um, hold their team accountable, then you're going to realize, yes, that's... That feedback is telling me that I'm not in line with where I want to be and um, I'm able to make changes based on bringing me closer to the characteristics that I'm looking to develop. So um, that's a really uh, important way to think of a filter. You don't have to kind of come up with your leadership persona yourself um, completely, but actually looking at other leaders and thinking about, um, you know, what do you like, uh, what, what resonates with you as something that you can see yourself doing versus um i think it's sometimes even easier to identify what are the things that you really don't like and don't want to be
1: that that's exactly right and this this is also important elizabeth when you think about the idea of mentorship i've had mm-hmm. a lot of great mentors in my career and they aren't all people i know uh, mm-hmm. so there are definitely people that that i either work for or um Maybe I didn't work for it directly, but I was on their broader team and I learned from them. But then there are also people that I, I didn't know, but I absolutely learned from. Uh, you know, like I just read Bob Iger's book. Bob Iger was a former CEO of Disney. I've never mm-hmm. met him. I probably never will. But I learned so much about how he thinks about leadership. You know, Phil Knight, his, uh, his story in creating Nike from from nothing and then building it into the juggernaut that it is today. So much of his journey, you know, and his views on leadership You don't have to know someone to really have them be a mentor, but it is important that you really study all different types of leaders and not just the ones that are in close proximity to you.
0: Definitely. Definitely. And um, I love that idea too, of when you're looking at mentors, again, thinking about, um, I would imagine you could have different mentors over the course of your career, potentially even just for one aspect of leadership that you want to improve and learn from them, Um, the more aligned they are overall with what you're with what you're looking to to grow into the better but if you're looking for you know i need to be better at holding people accountable um and that's just one aspect of growth that that i want to have getting somebody who's going to mentor you specifically in that can be can be a really valuable thing as opposed to just one person who you want to model your life completely after them absolutely um that's that's a really great context and kind of starts into what I want to spend, I think, a lot of the rest of our discussion today focusing on is what are some of the specific bits of feedback that you have received over the years and the key lessons that you've learned um, that you feel like uh are, are really valuable for others to hear. So um I know I've got some ideas uh from from the parts of the book that I've read, but I'd like to hear from you what are some of the the key ones that um that you really want to focus on?
1: Yeah, you know there are there are lots. I guess I'll start with this idea that someone told me once. A manager told me once when I got promoted into a a, a pretty big job. He said, "You are reaching the end. You may have reached the end of the days when um, what you and your Dell laptop are going to get done are the most important thing. It's it's really now about your team, and it's mm-hmm. about how you build your team, how you develop them. Meaning, it, it's not just you anymore, and like the work that you put out." And that I think was one of the most important lessons I learned, and I found it to be so so true. As you progress in your career, at some point it does stop becoming about you and what you can do individually, and how you build teams, and how you motivate teams, and how you you know get them to accomplish things as an organization. And uh, to me, one of the most important things that I learned is that there are things, there are traits that you can coach in people. Mm-hmm. And there are traits that you absolutely cannot coach, mm. and I've I've learned over time that you will waste your time trying to coach those uncoachable traits. And I I know because I, I've tried. And that's <laughs> that's not to say that someone cannot learn those things, but they've got to learn them like on their own through their own life experiences. If they come to my team and they don't have them, I cannot coach them. Mm-hmm. And so, like I view things like if you have um, maybe maybe you have trouble with public speaking, or maybe you are the type of person that generates prodigious amounts of work output and you just have trouble synthesizing it and summarizing it in an executive format those types of things you can absolutely coach in someone right but if you uh, don't have a sense of integrity a mm-hmm. sense of accountability uh, a sense of collaboration meaning you prioritize the team's success over your own individual success and then a strong sense of positivity if you don't have those four traits I can't coach them into you. At least that's what I found. And the first three are, are, I would consider to be no brainers, right? Everyone has some, if you were to look at everyone's values is, you know, individual companies, everyone has some notion of integrity, um, accountability at Axon. We call it own it, Mm -hmm. right? That you hold not only yourself accountable, but you hold others accountable. That's Mm -hmm. a really important theme that you see play out in a lot of companies. Uh, Collaboration is another one, right? At at Axon, uh, our equivalent of that is join forces. You want to, you know, again, prioritize a team success over your own success. The one that I find I catch flack for sometimes from folks is positivity. Mm -hmm. And my view on that one is people will tell me like, Hey, I'm a realist. I'm not an optimist. And in my view, there is that the, the spectrum of positivity to negativity, it's not linear, right? You don't like slide up and down it. It's, it's more like a, a pointy hill Um, Mm. where it comes to a point in the middle and I strongly believe that at the margin in times of adversity, people will either trend one way or the other. Okay. So if if you think you're a realist and you're like dead center and you try not to be too optimistic, you try not to be pessimistic. The important thing is what happens when the going gets tough. Mm -hmm. Do you roll up your sleeves? Do you view it as a challenge, as a time that you can grow, as a time that you can really have an impact or are you going to start pointing fingers and blaming others for how unfair or difficult things are? Are you just going to start to be, you know, are you going to gripe? And that's what leads to a toxic culture and a toxic work environment. And I've just found, like, when people view things that way, you'll, there's nothing you can do to coach mm-hmm. them out of that. They're just they're always going to have that chip on their shoulder or that view that someone is, you know, the system is working against them, whatever the case might be. And there's nothing you can do to get them out of that. And and to me. I just don't have the tolerance for a you know a toxic work environment. You just waste so much time and effort and calories trying to work around that. So for me, those four traits are what I look for, and uh, I, I literally look for them in interviews. So at Axon, I own a few functions: our finance, IT functions, our legal function, our consumer business. Uh, I own that that P and L as well. And no one gets hired into any of those functions at Axon unless their final interview is with me, and I'll. I'll ask those questions. I'll, I'll look mm-hmm. for those traits. I don't always get it right. Um, I've got a, a pretty good feel for it now. I've done hundreds and hundreds of interviews and I can tell pretty quickly, um, you know, if someone like generally has those traits. And like I said, I don't always get it right. And then we work to address it if, I, if we don't get it right. Um, but it's important to me because I want everyone coming in to know that they're held to the same standard. I also want the people that are on my team to know that the folks coming in were held to the same standard that they were. Mm. And the reason that's important to me is that those four traits, collectively, I've found, serve, Elizabeth, as a heuristic or a shortcut for trust. Okay, Mm -hmm. I know if you have those four traits, then I can trust you. And your teammates can trust you. And you can trust your teammates because they were held to that standard as well. And that, to me, is one of the the biggest uh, keys in having a high-performing team is when you've got a team that trusts each other, then they can not only move more quickly and more efficiently, but they can also get some pretty remarkable things done.
0: Absolutely. I love that. And like you said, um, these these the first three especially make a lot of sense. Positivity, I think, um, could be kind of confusing for people or people might push back on. But When you think of people you trust, it's because you understand their like level of integrity and you believe they have it. Um, You know that you know that not only could you hold them accountable, but they'll hold themselves accountable and they'll hold you accountable because it's it's useful in all of those areas. Um, You know they're able to work effectively together in a group and collaborate. And then I think we've all been around people who are uh kind of unrealistically positive. And that's not what I hear that you're looking for. You're looking for somebody who is not going to be fatalistic um, as soon as something goes wrong. You know, being able to kind of be in the middle and recognize um challenges and recognize risks is a good thing. But just blindly always assuming the worst is not going to be good for anybody.
1: That, that's exactly right. And actually, so to that point, Elizabeth, I'll tell you what I look for in an interview. The question I ask specifically on positivity is I ask folks to tell me um, when they're having uh, a tough stretch of time, not necessarily like one, a one-off bad day, when they're in a, in a period of adversity, a prolonged adversity, mm-hmm. I, I ask them to tell me what they're feeling and how they work through it. Yes. And I would say that probably... 50 40 to 50% of people will give me things like i go for a walk i play with my dog i play with my kids i read a book and they're basically coping mechanisms and mm-hmm. they they tell me things that they use to kind of cope with the stress then another like 40 ish percent will tell me will give me some sense of reframing so they reframe the issue and they say well i take a step back and i think about what I'm struggling with, or I look at it as, uh, you know, this two shall pass kind of thing. And it's just basically reframing the problem. And then probably only like 5%, maybe less than 5% of people give me the, the Holy grail answer that I'm looking for, which is that's when I shine. I, I thrive in periods of adversity because I, you know, see the, the opportunity to, to grow and, uh, to challenge myself. I'm not looking for, Oh, well, th- you know, everything is sunshine and rainbows and everything's going to be okay. I'm not looking <laughs> for that.
0: Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And um, I, I love that idea of kind of a steep bell curve for positivity, because uh, we, we can all see that. And in terms of interviewing, uh, I know that's something that a lot of leaders really struggle with, um, which is, you know, it's easy to evaluate people on technical skill and experience. Have you done this before? Do you know this, you know, Software platform. Do you understand this concept? But you could have the most technically capable person, and if they don't have these four characteristics, they are not going to be a good member of your team. And so, being able to interview four um, for traits like this is such an incredibly important um, aspect of the hiring process. And um, being able to boil it down to just four simple concepts like that is a is a real benefit for people who. Who want to develop and grow those teams.
1: Yeah, that that's a great point. I, so in my interviews, I don't ask a single technical question. Mine are all behavioral. Part of that is because I assume, well, what I used to tell people is I assume that if someone's made it to me, someone's asked them the technical questions along the way. But mm-hmm. I would even go out on a limb and, and argue that it almost doesn't matter if you interview for the technical skills because someone, you can see it on their resumes. Most people are not dishonest about those things. I'm not you know mm-hmm. denying that there are some some folks that might be but the majority the vast majority of people are not dishonest about representing what they what they've done and what they can do as far as their skill set and even if you never ask them the technical questions if you ask them the right behavioral questions that person even if they don't know how to do something specifically or maybe it's like a little bit outside of what they've done in the past if they have a strong sense of accountability if they've got integrity they're going to figure it out they're you know mm-hmm. they're going to work hard they're going to um, you know, I can give you examples of folks that I've hired that uh, didn't have. Uh, I actually talk about someone in my book who was my uh, admin. She she was my admin in my prior job. I brought her over to Axon with me when I started that job four years this job four years ago. Uh, she now works in investor relations, and she, um, you know, went above and beyond her job as an admin, and then wanted to uh, take on more responsibility. We gave her a shot in a junior investor relations role. And she has those traits and spades, and you know she just she figured it out because she has that that drive uh, and that really strong sense of of wanting to succeed. And today we'll have her talk to investors on her own without mm-hmm. me or without the head of IR. Um, and I, I really think that people that have those traits will figure things out eventually.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, all of these aspects really lead to somebody being able to learn and fill in any gaps they might have. Because, you know, if if you have these, you know, if you're a positive collaborator, for example, and you realize that there's just something you don't know, you're going to be able to go to the rest of the team and ask for help. And they'll be willing to help you because they, they see these positive characteristics in you, um, as opposed to um, just depending on yourself and you know, expecting yourself to be an expert in That's everything. Right. Um, what, um, what might be some of the other key lessons that you've identified?
1: Sure. So, um, I, I talked briefly about perception being reality that that was a really mm-hmm. big one for me. Uh, I talk in the book about an experience I had working for someone. So I, I took a job, uh, a a, a job in a division GE where I worked for a manager that I'd previously worked for. And about a month after I got there, he left, he got tapped for another job somewhere else. And now I'm in this division of GE where I had no network. I had no, you know, political capital or goodwill. I wasn't really a known quantity. And that's when, um, you know, I I realized that if I let other people define my career trajectory, then I was going to end up where other people wanted me to be. And Mm -hmm. so I took a step back and really thought about what, what is it that I want to do? Okay. Like, let me, let me like stop waiting to get tapped on the shoulder. Let me think about what is it that I want to do. And what I kept coming back to is I love running a business. I, I love being an operator. So, you know, GE didn't really have a chief operating officer role. It was really, that's what they viewed finance as. And so that's why I don't really view myself as like your, your standard finance person. I don't have a CPA. I never worked on wall street. I, mm-hmm. I know enough to be dangerous, but what I really get <laughs> excited by is, is running a business. And so that's that's what I said. I, what I want to do is run a business someday. And the proxy that I came up with that was to be a CEO. And so I started looking at other CEOs that had come up through the finance track, were you know CFOs at one point. And I just worked backwards from there. And I said, all right, well, for me to become a CEO and to first be a CFO, here, here are the things that I need to do. And I really started focusing more On the experiences that i needed to get and that was Mm -hmm. such a huge mindset shift for me because when i did that uh, i then started declining jobs that i probably otherwise would have taken i was at this point where i felt like i'd stagnated in my career in ge and i started hearing from headhunters you know who would say come take this job that's like you know i I was a vp of of financial planning and analysis and -hmm. i got an offer once for a job where they uh, wanted me to come be like a senior vice president of, of, of analysis. And it was like 20 to 25% more pay. Who who wouldn't want a little bit more pay and, and a bigger title? Well, what I did was I stopped focusing on the title and the pay, and I started focusing more on the experiences that I needed. And what I saw was, well, if I take this job, it's really not that different from what I'm doing now. So no, I'm, I'm not going to take it. And I got really picky about only taking jobs where I was Learning more and 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 growing and g- getting a new set of experiences that was going to keep me going towards my north star, and I think that mind shift was so imp- was was so important to me because I started viewing myself differently, not only getting pickier about roles, but also like how I viewed my ultimate endpoint in my career, and also it changed how other people viewed me because I started telling people when people would ask, I would tell them I want to be a CEO someday, or I you know I'm only going to take a CFO role, and I. Interviewed quite a bit when I was looking to leave GE, and I decided I want to. Uh, I was a divisional CFO when I left, and I knew I wanted to be a CFO of the entire company, not just a divisional CFO. So mm-hmm. many people, I had so many interviews where people told me, "You're not ready yet. Go be a controller somewhere. Go be a number two. Go be you know a, a second to a CFO somewhere. Do that for a few years, and then you could be a CFO." And I just I I wouldn't listen because I felt like the experiences that I had up to that point were enough me to take a CFO role somewhere. I just needed to, uh, learn how to package it up and, and talk about it in that way. And eventually I did figure it out and, and got a CFO role. And yeah, then I would, kind of- I would say, you know, Elizabeth, what happened along the way was I was so focused on, um, getting to my North star. When I got to Axon, initially I only owned the finance function, but again, because of the way that I viewed myself and the way that I was trying to make contributions to the company. My role ended up expanding. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I've, I've reached my North Star. So I'm not a CEO, but it was never about the title for me. It was more about, like I said, running the company. That's what excited me. And I feel like I'm doing that. We've got a really tight-knit uh, executive team at Axon. And I run more than just finance. And you know, between me and the other execs, we basically run the company together. Um, and and Rick, our CEO, he's got a lot of trust in us. And so I actually redefined my North star recently. And that's another Mm -hmm. thing I've, you know, I've, um, I encourage people to do is like your North star. It's not a one and done. You can constantly redefine it. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. When I did my MBA at MIT, some of my classmates were in their fifties. They were, you know, uh, very, very far into their careers and they still had a second or, or a third act left in them. You know, I think a lot of people do. People are living longer than ever these days and they're healthier, there's no reason you can't redefine your North Star at 50 or 60 or at any age, right? And so for me, I recently redefined it as instead of running a business because I feel like I'm doing that today, today my North Star is to build and develop high-performing teams that will have transformative societal impact, right? It's not enough for me to just build high-performing teams. I feel like I've done that. I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave a mark on this world. And I know that the best way to do that is through a team, not just not just by myself.
0: Absolutely, I I really love that because, like you said, um, you may and even just based on life experience, based on feedback that you get or or what you notice yourself, uh, you don't want to just keep driving towards something without occasionally checking in and analyzing. Um, is that still where I want to go? But also, like you said you, you do have to have that direction. And sometimes people might not, um, understand what you're going for. They might not think it makes sense, but if you can get other people to buy in and give you a chance, right. If, if you couldn't find an organization that would allow you to be a CFO, um, you would have at some point eventually had to, had to make a different decision. But if you know, this is the path that I want to be on, this is the next step that I want to take. Um, you're going to work harder to to find people that are willing to work with you on that, and that's also just going to be a sign that you'll be a better fit within their team if they can align with you on um, on what that step is and 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 see how you add value in that function.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And yeah, and just real quickly to double click on something you said there, um, I would have I would have kept going until I found a CFO role, even if it was one for like a really small company. And I believe this now more than ever with the experience that I have that when you're, and it doesn't have to be a CFO. If you, if you're looking to be a chief revenue officer or a chief marketing officer or product officer, whatever it is, maybe even, you know, a CEO, you're better off getting that experience in the top job, even if the company is really small, Mm. because the scale at some point uh, what's less, the scale is less important than the act of owning an entire function. And I can tell you this, but I, I worked at, you know, GE was a massive, massive company. The division that I was a CFO for at GE was actually twice as large as Axon when I joined Axon in 2017. Axon has now since grown quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I took the job at Axon, it wasn't the biggest company that I had uh, owned a PL for. Um, and the company that I was at prior to Axon, it was a private equity backed one that was f- relatively tiny. But that job was, uh, you know, it was CFO for the entire company. And it was infinitely more complex than, mm-hmm. than the you know big job I had at GE because I owned all of it. It wasn't just, you know, a, a aspects of a PL. and was It was the entire thing. I owned the treasury functions. I owned, um, you know, the relationships with auditors, with our board. Uh, and that experience was invaluable and you could take that that experience that I had there and you could scale it right like it's mm-hmm. it's easy like certainly there there are times when things get more complex the bigger you get but generally speaking you're better off getting the experience in the top job regardless of how big the company is
0: absolutely um, I can I can say I've seen that for myself as well as for so many clients that I've worked with over the years um, and like you said a lot of it can be um, tied to a smaller organization because while not everybody wants to work for, you know, a startup or, or just a small business in general, um, you're going to wear a lot of hats. You're going to have to step up because a lot of times there aren't uh, enough people and resources to to do things um, unless you're the one that, that does it. And so it gives you the opportunity to grow at an accelerated rate. Um, but then uh, figuring out, you know, what, what can you aspire to? And I think a key aspect of that is back to kind of where we started. Um, when you don't come from a background where you see a lot of examples of people who look like you or people who have the same background and experience as you in a function, or when you don't have you know, lots of friends and family members um, who have the networks who can, who can get you into these opportunities. It's even more important then for you to really have a strong vision for yourself of what you're looking for and why, because you're going to need to continue to articulate it to yourself just as much as you are to the people around you. Um, because you know when we think of things like imposter syndrome and um, all of the aspects of um, challenge that people face, uh, especially moving into new environments, that that don't have a lot of people like them in there. Uh, it's a mix of internal characteristics and internal um, experiences, as well as external that can help propel you forward or that can hold you back. And um, having that strong vision, that strong North Star, um, and uh, some ideas about uh, you know the path to get there, not just I see that CEO, Role and that's where I want to get, but I see a CEO through a CFO, and this is why. And that's a really, um, a really powerful example.
1: Yeah, I, I also I talk about this briefly in the book, um, but you know it's something that I, I like to expand on in these discussions. Elizabeth is the idea that I, I didn't look like the people around me, and, and the further you progress in your career, you know mm-hmm. the the more likely you are to be in a room that's. Mostly filled with with white men, and certainly in the private equity world, when I worked uh, in that company for three years, there there was almost no diversity at all. So once a year, uh, they'd get all their portfolio companies together in December, and they'd have everyone present their budgets uh, and like do like a year end review, look ahead at you know at the coming year, and we'd go do a holiday dinner as well. And uh, they they were based in LA. We typically like get a, a restaurant in LA, and you'd get to meet the other folks, at the other companies. And there were maybe seventy five, maybe a hundred mm-hmm. folks at this dinner. And uh, one year I was there, I looked around the room, and I was the only person of color in the room.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and there
1: was there was one or two other other women in the room. Um, and you know, when I was there in that time, the three years that I was there, we bought ten companies, and we looked at a lot more. Again, the most of those companies we went to look at, the vast majority of, of those uh, executive teams were were white men, and I think you know what what you what I what I have found in my experience is that most people are not racist, right? Again, like mm-hmm. you can have you can have the outliers, but most people just like working with people that they're comfortable with, or they mm-hmm. get referrals, or they get uh, you know uh, a reference from someone that they, that they know, and it's just it's not that they're looking to exclude someone of a certain color or background. They're just, you know, maybe not comfortable with, uh, with that person's background, um, or they don't have exposure to it. And so they, they just go with something that they're familiar with. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a person of color in that environment, what you need to do is to stop raging against the machine. Okay. Like it's not in your best interest to have like all this anger and, and keep pointing out like how biased and racist everyone is. Okay, that is, that is not helpful. What you need to do is focus on yourself and what you can deliver because a lot of places are meritocracies, right? A lot of places value what you can accomplish regardless of your skin color, uh, regardless of, of your background. Uh, and, I, and I've seen that, right? Well, I, I It has cer- certainly been true for me. I've seen it of other executives who have gotten to positions uh, like mine and other companies where when you focus more on what it is that you can accomplish, unless you know uh, about like trying to change change the system, um, that's how you actually do change the system long term. Is by having other people uh, see more people like you in, in roles like CFO or CEO.
0: Definitely, and I think um, I want to kind of I'll push back just a little bit, but I I think we're on the same page here. But I think this is an important point to drill down on. You have the ability to change. Systems and processes when you are uh, when you are providing a different perspective. And so, for example, let's say you are black, and maybe you went to a historically black college, um, and you have an organization that has a hiring process and a pool of people that they know in a network that they have that is not looking at majority black and historical colleges, and so. They, you know, somehow you got that job. You have the ability to contribute to that system and that process to say, "Hey, let's," you know, potentially expand the hiring pool. So, but coming in and assuming uh, negative intent and assuming that um, that it's intentional that people aren't um, finding people like you is is not going to likely get you a a positive response. And so, um, just you know, doing the work and and performing, but also contributing your own unique perspective, um, can be a way to drive change in a way that sticks as opposed to just, uh, something that might get a backlash or an immediate, um, response that, that doesn't really, um, continue.
1: I, I agree with you a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And this is where data is your friend. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I helped do this, like at Axon, we started measuring our statistics on, uh, on non-white candidates. Like who are we interviewing? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how many people are we actually hiring? Like, what is the makeup of our team? Like, let's look at gender diversity. Let's look at uh, the the pay gap between men and women. Um, mm-hmm. All of that in all those situations, data is your friend. So, if you were to come into an organization and say, "Okay, look at the executive team. You're all white. I don't really see a lot of diversity here," like pointing that out by itself is is not really gonna help win people to your cause. Okay. Yes. However, if you if you Bring data, and you say uh, not only like the makeup of our executive team is white, and other similar companies, it's actually a little bit you know it's it's more diverse. Or uh, the, if you look at the candidates that we're hiring, for every uh, we don't have diversity you know at certain levels, or for the for the for the roles that we're hiring, like there's not like we're not even looking at diverse candidates. Like why mm-hmm. is that? All that data you should use to help affect change is my Absolutely.
0: point. Absolutely. Um, so one key uh, thing that I got out of the book um, that I'd like to maybe spend a minute on is the idea, and I think this is kind of building on, on what we're talking about just now, is the idea of being a leader versus kind of doing leadership or being in a position of leadership. And I know it's it's one of the first parts of the book, but um, that really resonated with me because I've seen so many organizations where leadership is coming. From a lot of people who don't have titles, but their leadership is essential in the success of the organization. So could you talk a little bit about what you've learned about being a leader and and how that's so important?
1: Yeah. This is one of the early chapters, as you pointed out in the book, where I was starting a, a training program, a week-long training program, and someone pulled me aside, a mentor that I uh, knew, and he said, be a leader this week. And I just kind of looked at him like, what, Like, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, and he, he said it again, he just said, be a leader this week and then, uh, just let me sit with it. And I realized over time, you know, initially I thought like, yeah, of course I'm going to speak up and raise my hand and take the tough assignments. Uh, but I realized over time that that actually was a choice that I made. And Mm -hmm. the further I got into my career, I also started to see people that get promoted to certain roles, or they get uh, certain titles, and they just assume all of a sudden, like, okay, I've made it, I'm a leader now, because by just by virtue of my title. And, and that's such a, a problematic way of thinking, like, I could make anyone, I could make you, Elizabeth, the CFO of Axon tomorrow, and Woo-hoo. everyone would listen to you, because they have to, because of, mm-hmm. you know, that the, your title or, or listen to anyone because of their title. But the question is, do they want to listen to you? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the the key differentiator. Like, if you're just if you're barking out orders and you're telling people, you know what to do and how to do it, I mean, you're you're managing tasks. You're not really a leader, right? And this is why I, I'm very much opposed to micromanaging because mm-hmm. I find like people make investments in themselves. They go to college. They you know go to they, they get these degrees. They Read books. They uh, watch videos, and they make these investments in themselves to to become the best that they can be. And then to have someone come in and tell you not only what you need to do, but how to do it, and, and managing like every little detail—it's so demotivating, mm-hmm. so demotivating,
0: condescending,
1: and it's condescending and it's disrespectful. Right? That's that's my view, um, and that's another reason why I'm so big on the trust thing. Is if I know I can trust you, and you've got mm-hmm. those traits, then I don't I don't need to micromanage you. I can let you spread your wings and fly. And I'm also very much okay with letting people fail and letting them experience failure because Mm -hmm. I experienced a lot of failure. My book is probably nothing more than an acknowledgement of all of the failures I had (laughs) over the course of my career and what I learned from them. Uh, And so I think it's really important for people to fail as well and to learn from those failures. And you can't do that if you're not letting people fail in the first place. So, you know, this is why I just, I really believe um, the, the, Key differentiator there is leaders trust their people. They give them a chance to spread their wings. They give them a chance to fall. They back them up. Right. That's another thing I I think is really important is to uh, provide air cover for your team when they need it. Uh, And that's you know there's a difference between just taking your hands off the wheel and being an absent leader versus letting them run and, and 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 operate on their own, but being there to like you know help them when they need it. Uh, that's a really important, I think, trait of leadership too. So that's another thing I, I learned is that, you. And, and one of the big things that really what it comes down to is you've got to care, right? That's mm-hmm. the big difference. A manager cares about getting tasks done because they want to make themselves look better. But a leader truly cares about their people and where it is they're trying to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think we, we kind of naturally float into... Something that I wanted to kind of close out our conversation with, which is, you know, you're talking a lot about feedback that you've received and. You're clearly a person that is open to feedback and listens to feedback, but I know there are environments where people aren't comfortable giving feedback or we're just the idea of feedback is like you said, it happens twice a year and it's, it's terrifying. Um, so how can leaders step up and create that culture of feedback where they can both give and receive feedback and people know that it's meant in a positive way. I think what you've just been talking about, you know, things like letting people fail and learn from things that's important, but are there any other key, um, key ways that you've discovered to create that environment for feedback?
1: Yeah, this is, so this is a great question. Um, because that, what I talked about earlier about, you know, when you get feedback from your manager to not get defensive, that is a hundred percent true of leaders as well. You need Mm -hmm. to be asking your team and your employees for feedback. We do it through surveys, and the surveys are, are really revealing. And there's some, you know, there's some tough truths in there. Mm-hmm. And you, it's incumbent upon you as a leader when you see those things to also not explain them away and come up with excuses like as to why an employee is not feeling valid. If you know, if if you've got. Um, a lack of representation of women in a certain level of leadership, well, you you've got you've to hit that head on. There's something that you're not doing right and for that to be an issue, if there's a, a pay gap and you know, women feel like they're not, there's not if the data is bearing out that there's not uh, equal pay between men and women for the same levels of roles, well, you've got to address that. You can't explain that away. Um, and so I, I think it's really important, this is incumbent on the leaders to really be reflective and to think about what your employees are telling you and to give them a form to do that. Hmm. Now, what I found is that uh, in the employee engagement surveys, the, the surveys that you'll do um, with that express purpose of getting feedback, you do those once or twice a year, and those should be anonymous because people should Absolutely. have a form where they can um, you know, share their feedback with you without fear of you know of retribution. However, what I found is not helpful is we have this thing called Axon Connect, which is Probably like once a month, we'll do a live uh, all hands meeting and we'll talk about certain topics. And we used to do uh, anonymous QA, and mm-hmm. it was, it, it, we actually had to stop it because it, it was pretty toxic. People would just take pot shots at individuals, mm. and, you know, and like that, that's not great, right? Like you want to provide an anonymous way for people to get feedback, but you don't want to give people an, a platform to anonymously snipe at other functions or people. Um, and so you, you just got to walk that. You know, walk that balance.
0: I I really love that because, um, like you said, a lot of times people are much more comfortable, especially sharing negative feedback um, in an anonymous form. But having that provided to leadership, not necessarily on display for everybody at first, is a is a good filter. But you know, I I heard a few things there. You need to ask for feedback as a leader, and do a couple things with it. First of all, you can't push back right away. Just like we were saying earlier, if you're hearing feedback from your leader, you, you don't want to just respond right away with, um, you know, with an argument, basically. Um, but then you have to take action based on it, even if it's just going back to somebody. I would imagine who gave you feedback and saying, you know, Jawad, uh, last week you mentioned that that you observed something in me and I've been really thinking about it and uh, I really appreciate that feedback that you gave me. Um, I am, you know, potentially saying, you know, I'm going to make a change or if you're not going to, to say, you know, I, I do think that that's something that I'll continue to keep in mind um, but I may continue in the direction that I'm going, but I still value your feedback and just letting people know that you heard them and and you respect them. And then obviously when it comes to more, systemic um, feedback you know if, if you're hearing from people we're like you said uh, pay gaps or our expectations are unrealistic or uh, you know objective things we want a break room with different different snack options and and you just let them know that you heard their feedback and you're acting on it that just creates that kind of culture where people understand you know I can give feedback at an individual level or at a systemic level and it's going to be heard and respected.
1: That, that's absolutely right. You know, I, here I'd I give uh, Rick, our CEO at Axon, a lot of credit. Uh, we had some very tough discussions last year after the George Floyd incident. Uh, a number of our Black employees just wanted to be heard. We gave them a forum and we, we had an open listening session where the execs and our, our Black employees shared their experiences. In some cases, their experiences on the job, working with our customers mm-hmm. in law enforcement where they experienced racism. And um, Rick said... You know, he he was floored. He had no idea because, like, we just don't. He he certainly, you know, as as a white man, doesn't have these experiences and didn't really have uh, a sense that um, you know our employees were were feeling that way. And we started a uh, Black Employee Resource Group. We we've given them funding and we have like periodic sessions where we hear not only from them but from other affinity groups in the company. And it's just such a great example of leadership to me. And, you know, you contrast this with—I uh, forget exactly who the company was, but there was a, a company, a tech company, where a CEO said, uh, basically, "We're not going to talk about anything political at work," and he, like banned political discussions. And there was like a rash <laughs> of resignations after that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's people are people, and you bring your whole self to work. And uh, you know, I, as as a white woman, I come from a position <laughs> of significant privilege, but um, when there are situations that. Um, you know, activate, uh, concerns that I have as a woman and, and experiences that I might've had, um, if, if I'm expected to just ignore that, that's not feasible. Yep. And, um, the same thing for any group that you might have. And so, um, really showing people that you're listening to them, that you're giving them appropriate, um, spaces for feedback and discussion, um, is so incredibly important. And, you know, again, the, this might seem like it's not necessarily a work-related thing, but if you're telling people that you're not going to listen to the concerns that they have related to, um, you know, police brutality and systemic violence and an oppression of people of color you're telling them you don't care about them as people. And then they're not going to bring feedback to you on systems and processes within your organization where they see room for improvement Um, because you're just, you're showing them who you are and they're going to notice that. So it is important to just have that kind of um, whole self approach to really looking at your people as people. And, you know, back to all the way we started at the beginning, there are core traits that people have um, that are kind of innate to who they are and, uh, part of that is just, you know, your experiences as a person and what and what makes you. And so, to to ignore that is really um, a disservice to the people on your team.
1: That's right. That's really well said.
0: All right. Well, I've I've very much enjoyed our conversation today, Jawad, and um, really uh, really am learning a lot from your book. Which I had finished it before we spoke, but I'm you know third of the way through, so I'll finish it uh, hopefully in the next couple of days. Uh, before we close out, I'd love to hear if there are any resources that you would recommend for our listeners.
1: Uh yeah, so you can you can visit my website, duatasan.com if you want to learn a little bit more about me. Um I am so passionate about this and I've uh, I've come and done some some talks at um book clubs or different, you know, groups where they're passionate about leadership. I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, Free of charge. I just I'm very very passionate about it. If people take the time to read my book uh, and you know and read about what I've put out there and some of the lessons I want to share, I'm happy to come talk about it with you. Um, I I feel like I'm at the point in my career. I'm not looking for a promotion. I'm really looking at this point to pay it forward. I want to take the lessons I've learned and and share it with others and help others reach their north star. And you can uh, reach me on joaddasan.com, and I'd love to hear from you.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for speaking with me today. Joanne, I'm sure our listeners really appreciated the uh, hearing from you.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and the resources for everything Jawad and I have been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 308. Make sure to tune into the podcast next week where we'll have another great guest. If you enjoyed the show today, uh, just like we've been talking about, give us some feedback. Uh, We love to hear from our uh, listeners. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us with direct feedback, questions, or guest suggestions at podcast.criteriaforsuccess.com. We'd also love it if you would recommend us to a friend. That's the best way to help more people discover the show. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook. And don't forget to check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com insights. Let's
1: Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!